So I want to start today by telling a story, a good old-fashioned kindergarten circle time story. <laughs> so it starts like most stories do. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful little girl. She was funny and smart and one of the most generous people you would ever meet. And as she was going about her business, she met a boy. And the boy was very handsome, and he was smart and creative, and he laughed at all of her jokes. <laughs> so as often happens, they fell in love. And as so many people who fall in love do, they got married, and they moved to a beautiful farm. And on that farm, there was a pond and rolling hills and a horse, and they were building a beautiful farmhouse to rival all farmhouses. And it came to pass that the little girl got pregnant. She was not a little girl anymore. <laughs> she got pregnant. And surprise, it was twins. So they were doubly blessed in their amazing life. The twins were born, and there were two little boys, the spitting image of their handsome father. And the boy and the girl decided we should bring our children to church and have them grow up in church. So they started on the adventure of finding a church home. There was just one small problem. Every Sunday, they would go to a church, and every Sunday they would be glared at or sneered at or even shooed out the door before the service even started. Why, you ask, they sound like such a great couple. Well, they are, but the beautiful little girl was white and the handsome man was black. And there was no church with their little family where they could all worship together and be welcomed. So they left all of the churches with a sour taste in their mouth and decided it would be better if they just didn't go to church. And they stayed at home. The end. The story doesn't end like most fairy tales. There's no happily ever after. <laughs> because this is not a fairy tale. This is the true life story of my very handsome, very smart, and very talented brother-in-law, Theodore, and his family. I have a picture of them. Maybe. There they are. <laughs> Theodore is the um, little boy on the bottom left. That is his twin brother, Raymond, next to him. Behind him is his mom, Sylvia, his dad, Raymond Sr., and their surprise little brother, Silas, who is about 10 years younger than them. <laughs> um, the story does have a happy ending. Theodore does now go to church. He's actually an elder at my home church, but that did not happen until he married my sister. And I tell you this story because this is the story of a lot of people. This is not something that happened long ago, right after the Civil War or during Jim Crow South. Theodore is 41 years old, so this happened about 35 years ago. And a lot of people have this experience. You see, for, church, for some people, church is not a safe place to bring their entire family and grow together and forge their life on him. And for some people, church is just at best an uncomfortable place where they can't really be themselves. And at worst, it is a painful place that has divided their family and their friends. So it is with Theodore's story in mind and many others that today I would like to address the elephant in the room of racism in the church. Happy Mother's Day! <laughs> um, 
We are currently in this series of sermons called The Elephant in the Room, where we as a church have decided to address the hard topics, because this is the foundry, and we are okay with putting hammer to metal and doing the hard work. We've talked about things like materialism, how we should view life in light of God's creation, and today we've come to the topic of race and ethnicity in the church. And I really think Andrew just might be mad at me for some reason and want me to do these topics. But I have to admit that this one is a tough one for me because it is very personal for me. And it's a tough one for the church at large. Not because it's hard to admit that racism is bad. It is. If you haven't heard it before, racism is a sin. Let's just get that out of the way. Racism is a sin. But for some reason, especially lately, racism has become this word that triggers people. You hear the word racism and we all just kind of clench up really tight and we immediately build up walls and we say, well, I'm not a racist. And that's the end of the conversation. And I'm sure some of you in your mind are like, we should not be talking about this. This is too political. And if she brings up CRT, I am walking out. Listen, I'm not talking about critical race theory, so everyone just take a breath. (laughs) Calm down. This is not something we can shy away from, though. And here's why. Because there is an entire generation of people looking at the church and saying, you talk about a God who came for everyone. And you talk about a God who died for everyone. And you talk about his kingdom that he's building that's made up of every nation and tribe and tongue, but your church doesn't look like that. And they're left asking the question, where is the proof of what your God can do? Where is the united kingdom of all nations and all tribes and all tongues praising God in one voice? Where is it? Because... Listen, guys, that idea is not a lofty dream that God says, I hope will happen someday. It's what the church is supposed to look like today, right now, in this moment. Our church, this church in this place in Fairfax County in Burke, Virginia, is surrounded by people from every nation and tribe and tongue, and we should reflect that because God's kingdom reflects that. Spoiler alert. The church is headed by Jesus, a Middle Eastern homeless man. The church is not white and European only. (laughs) In fact, some of the greatest movements right now in the church are in places like South America and Africa and Asia. In Africa, for instance, where Andrew is, in the year 1900, just a little over 100 years ago, there were only 8.7 million Christians on the entire continent. Today, there are 390 million, and it is expected that in two short years, that number will almost double to 600 million. The kingdom of God is alive, it is flourishing, it is growing in every nation, tribe, and tongue, but for some reason, especially here in the West, our churches aren't reflecting that. We've boxed ourselves in and divided ourselves up into separate churches. So how do we fix that? How do we change that? How do we make this place, the foundry, a place where everyone feels like they can come in and find a home and forge a life on God? How will this local outpost of the kingdom of God reflect the full picture of the kingdom of God? 
Well, the answer, I think, as with most things, is found in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke. We're going to be in the 10th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use the one in the seat in front of you. As always, those are for you to take and keep and give away. (laughs) There's just something special about opening up your own Bible, writing in it, underlining and all of those things. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And as you turn there, I want to give you a bit of a context for the book of Luke. It is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it was written by one of Jesus's followers named Luke. <laughs> Luke was a doctor and he wrote the book of Luke and Acts to his friend Theophilus. Some scholars believe it's just one letter. Some say it's separate, but we do know that both of them were written to Luke's friend, Theophilus, who was a Greek. You could probably tell that by his name. Um, And some scholars believe that Theophilus was actually a high-ranking official in the government. And so the Gospel of Luke was written with a lot of explanations in it. There are a lot of explanations of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled because Theophilus was not a Jew. He wouldn't have understood those, and so those are included in there. This book was written for outsiders. It was written for non-Jewish people hearing the story of a Savior who came for all people, not just Jewish people. And today we'll be looking at a passage that I think a lot of you have probably heard about or heard of. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, and I think within it we will find the answer to addressing our elephant in the room. So... We will start in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbors as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I want to stop right there for a second. So our story begins with a lawyer who has a question for Jesus. And when we hear the word lawyer, we might think of Perry Mason, or for those of you who are younger than 40, Saul Goodman or someone on Law and Order. (laughs) But that is not what this is. This is not that kind of lawyer. This lawyer is an expert in Jewish mosaic and rabbinical Law. So he was an expert in what we would call the Old Testament. He was an expert in the Ten Commandments, one through ten, got him, check. And he was an expert in the book of Leviticus, the book that most of us skip over when we're reading the Old Testament because it's got a, law, got a lot of law in it. But this lawyer would have known those things. In fact, he probably would have had most of them memorized. So the question he asked, it's kind of sort of weird that he would ask it. It would be like Perry Mason or L. Woods coming up to us and saying, how do I get out of jail? Our answer would be, you should probably know that. You're a lawyer. And that's sort of what Jesus does. He sort of responds by saying, well, tell me what you know. Tell me what you've read in the law. And the lawyer answers actually quite well. He says the right things. And Jesus even tells him, you're right. Go out and do that. But then the lawyer continues. So read with me verse 29. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
If you are writing in your Bible, which you should be, um, circle the word justify, underline it, put a square around it, highlight it, whatever, because justifying ourselves is where we all get into trouble. It reminds me of the first time I was ever pulled over. I was um, 16, or half, 16 and a half or 17. I was dating the pitcher of the high school baseball team, and I was over at his house watching a movie. And I had just left, and my curfew on Fridays and Saturdays was 10 o'clock. I know my parents were really mean people. But <laughs> my curfew was 10 o'clock, and I left my boyfriend's house at 9.55 to make a 20-minute drive. I, it wasn't smart, but <laughs> I did that. And um, of course, as I was doing that, in my rush to get home, I was speeding. And of course, there was a police officer, and I got pulled over. And if you can't already tell, I'm a very emotional person. <laughs> so the minute that I saw those lights and I knew what was happening, I started bawling. Tears, snot, all the things just running down my face, freaking out. And the policeman comes up, knocks on my window, and asks for my license and registration. Well, then I cried even more because I couldn't remember what a registration was. And so he calmly explained it to me. I found it. And then he asked me the question that every police officer asked. Do you know why I pulled you over? And me being me, told on myself and said, yes, I was speeding. But... And then I tried to justify myself. I said, my parents are really mean. If I don't get home on time, they're going to kill me. Not true. And then I said, and my boyfriend had a really bad day, so I was just making him feel better. Again, not true. We were just watching a movie. So I'm going through these lies over and over, and the police officer was just staring at me. And I'm trying to justify myself. I'm trying to justify why I was breaking the law, trying to justify why getting home quickly was more important than the safety of anyone else on the road. And as I'm going through all of this, the cop interrupts me and says, can you stop? Tears are not going to work on me. Oh, <laughs> the pain. And then I had to justify why I was crying. I said, sir, I'm Italian. I'm 17 years old. I cry at everything. I cry when I'm happy, when I'm sad, when I'm scared, when I'm angry, and I'm going through this list. And he just walks away. <laughs> so that didn't work either. He walked back to his car, wrote his ticket, came back, gave it to me. And then I went home and I arrived 50 minutes late for curfew. My sweet dad was like, I think you've been through enough trauma, and he didn't ground me, but <laughs> I say all of this to say that we all do this. We all try to justify ourselves. We try to explain away our bad behavior. We say things like, well, it was just a joke. I don't really mean that. Or I was just singing along to a song. I don't always say that word. It's just the way I was raised, you have to understand. You see where I'm going with this. We have all been there trying to justify ourselves. We have all been with this lawyer saying, I can love God. I got that. But those pesky neighbors, they're hard to love. I mean, I love my family most of the time, and I love the people from my church. But sometimes my boss is just horrible. Do I really have to love them? And sometimes that guy across the street plays his music really loud. Do I have to love them? And sometimes my coworker cooks fish in the microwave. I don't think I should have to love them. And I think Jesus might agree with you on that one. But just err on the side of caution. <laughs> and that person, they come from a different place. 
I'm not racist, it's just easier to be friends with someone who shares my experiences. We all try to justify it away. We all try to make the neighbor box smaller and smaller and smaller until we are comfortable with who is left in the box. So let's look at how Jesus responds to this try for justification. Starting in verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So Jesus' answer to our try for justification is a resounding, get over yourself. (laughs) Yes, you have to love those people, all of those people, even the ones that are hard to love, even the ones that look different than us and the ones that are from a different place than us and the ones that we may even think are our enemy. Because if you don't know, the Samaritans and the Jews were sworn enemies. They hated each other. And this went back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They were once a part of the same kingdom of God, but they separated, and then things just went downhill from there. The Samaritan in this story and the Jewish people who were listening to this story could not have been more culturally different. They were not only opposites of one another, they were enemies of one another. They looked different, they dressed different, they worshipped different. The Samaritans were the other guys. But here, in this story, Jesus makes the other guy the hero. The Samaritan is the neighbor. And the Jewish people listening were supposed to take their cues from him on how to behave in the kingdom of God. And this would have been shocking to them. But Jesus said, take note of what this Samaritan is doing, because we should be doing it too. So let's take note. Let's break it down what he does and do it ourselves. What's the first thing the Samaritan does? We look in verse 33. What's the first thing he does? When he saw him, he had compassion. So what is compassion? To have compassion means to sympathize with someone who is suffering and to feel compelled to reduce that suffering. The Samaritan saw this man and felt compelled to reduce his suffering. We don't see the Samaritan coming up to the Jewish man and saying, oh, they didn't hit you that hard. Get up, you're fine. (laughs) No, he had compassion. And we don't see the Samaritan coming up to him and saying, I think you're making a bigger deal out of this than what it really is. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Just get up, you're fine. 
No, he had compassion and he didn't say, well, I'm walking here and nobody beat me up. What did you do to deserve this? No, he had compassion. Church, we have got to be a people of compassion for those who are experiencing life in a different way than we are. There are people in our community, Hispanic people, African-American people, Asian people, indigenous people who have been severely hurt. They have been beaten down by this world, some physically, most of them emotionally and verbally. And hear me, some of them have been beaten down by the church itself, like my brother-in-law. And while we cannot fix what has already happened to them, neither could the Samaritan, we can have compassion. We can say, I hear you, I believe you, I am with you, and I want to help. Compassion starts with not putting up defensive walls and just simply believing someone when they say they have experienced racism. I think somewhere in the midst of all of this, we have made racism into an unforgivable sin. And so when someone brings it up, we're like, oh, wasn't me. I'm not racist because I can't commit that unforgivable sin. Okay, maybe you didn't, but someone did. And someone, a child of God, is hurting. So stop being so defensive and just have a little compassion. Someone hurt your neighbor. Someone hurt your brother and sister. So maybe, just maybe, 